All right, imagine this. Uh, Imagine having to go around proving that you are, in fact, alive. Wouldn't that be a little uncomfortable? There's a guy in India named Lal Bihari. He's a farmer. And for 18 years, in the eyes of the government, he was considered legally dead. It took him 18 years to convince everybody that he was, in fact, really alive. I was amazed by this story. Uh, It was uh, when he tried to apply for a bank loan in 1976 that he officially found out he was dead. I mean, in the eyes of the government, you can't have the loan because you're not living. And he said, what do you mean I'm not living? I'm clearly living. No, you're not. So he dug to the bottom of it, and apparently his uncle had bribed a government official to register him as dead so the uncle could confiscate his land. And because of the bribe and because of the false paperwork, they officially had him down as dead. And they refused to change his status. Wouldn't that be uncomfortable and frustrating? So over the years, he tried different things to do to attract attention to his case. He used various means. He organized his own funeral. In addition, in 1980, he added the word legally, he added the word dead to his name. And he signed all of the letters that he ever signed. He signed the late Lal Bihari trying to show people how, foolishness, how foolish uh, it was to consider him dead. And then finally, in 1994, he managed to officially have his death annulled. And he became such a popular case that in 2004, he ran for parliament and tried to help other people who were trying to prove, in fact, that they were not dead. Now, I don't know about you, but that'd be kind of frustrating if I had to go around proving to people that I was, in fact, alive. But guess what? The Lord Jesus Christ spends an awful lot of time, and he's done so over the past couple thousand years, trying to prove to people that he is, in fact, not dead. He's alive. I think Jesus can relate to Lal Bihari. This morning, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're talking about the resurrection. In fact, the whole chapter that we're going to start into this morning is on the resurrection. There's like over 50 verses, and here's the reason. It's because this church in Corinth was messed up. They were so messed up that there were some people who were saying, oh, resurrection, nobody comes back from the dead. Once you're dead, you're dead. And, and Paul has to write to this church to say, let me bring you back to the basics. Because we believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again. And Paul sh- uh, tries to show that, first of all, because Jesus rose from the grave, here's what that means. And then he tries to show if that didn't happen, if Christ had not risen from the dead, here's what that means. They had to get their theology straight. We are skipping ahead to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, and it's going to take six weeks leading us up to Easter to get through this chapter. Uh, We're going to cover the resurrection of Jesus, the future resurrection of us. We'll talk about death. We'll talk about life after death. We'll talk about the end times, the rapture, and most importantly, the gospel. And that's where we kick off this morning, the gospel. So let's pray and then we'll get into God's word together. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for the truth of the gospel. And this morning, my prayer is, as as you've brought us back to first things, as you bring us back to the fresh declaration of the truth. For some, this is going to be another reminder, the most glorious thing they've ever heard. And for others, this is going to be new. Perhaps they've never understood the gospel. My prayer, Lord, is that as we fix our eyes on Jesus this morning, as we think again of the gospel, that it would penetrate our hearts, that your spirit would be at work speaking to us, 
and that it would go forth in power as you promised it would. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so check out 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Do you have your Bible? Hold up your Bible if you've got it, because I want to see that you have it. All right, that's a pretty decent proportion. If you don't have a Bible, just steal your neighbors. <laughs> what are they going to do, fight you for it? <laughs> You're in church. I need it. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're at, beginning in verse 1. It says this, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now this is quite, this is a lot to, to pick apart, so jot it down and then we'll start digging in. But the gospel is my only hope of being saved. Write that down. It's my only hope of being saved. Do you know what the word gospel means? Some of you are like, duh, I've been in church for a long time. Yeah, I know it. And others of you are like, uh, give me a little help. Multiple choice. Now, I'm saying that because when I was a freshman in college and I started going to church, the pastor one time, I remember, I remember he said this. He said, here's what the gospel means. And I was taking notes. I didn't know. I thought gospel was like one type of music that they gave a Grammy to. Every oh, gospel music, you know. And so when he defined it, it was helpful for me. Maybe it'll be helpful for you, but here's what it is. It's a compound word in the Greek. Good message. Good message or good news. That's the word gospel. The word good news is the word gospel. And have you received any good news lately? I mean, anything where you got the phone call or the email or the text and you were like, yeah, it was like good news. I couldn't wait to hear it. And have you received any good news lately? Uh, now, last week, my wife received good news because it was her birthday, right? And some of you are wondering how she reacted. If you were here last week in the second service, I told you that it was her birthday. So I decided to go all out this year. And she's been talking to me about how this is the year we have to go to Disney because you don't get many chances and our oldest is getting older and our youngest is right in the little realm, right? Some of you have thought through this. And, and so this is it. We're going to save up and we're going to make it to Disney this year. But see, I was noncommittal. I was waffling. And uh, so it was on her birthday that I decided to tell her I'm in fact in on somehow getting our family to Disney this year. So what I did was I gave her her ticket for her birthday. Do you want to see the look on her face when she got good news? Okay, here's the look on her face when she got good news. Does that look like somebody who just got good news? Yeah? Okay, but here's the problem. She's the only one in the family who's gotten the good news so far because she's the only one who's got her ticket. So, so I... And this has given me tremendous leverage as a parent because now with all the kids, you want to go to Disney? Huh? You will clean your room. You, I've got so much power right now, it's unimaginable. <laughs> this is too much power for one man to have. They're doing what I say, when I say, and if you don't, you're going to stay home with grandma. Which grandma? You know which grandma. You better get to work. And if you keep screwing around, it's going to be great grandma that you're I mean... It's going to my head, okay? But here's, I don't even have my ticket yet. She's the only one who got good news because we got to save up and find a way on the budget to make this work, right? So the kids are very eager uh, to see the day come when they receive the good news. Now, keep that in mind. Good news, whatever good news you've received lately, or hey, the gospel is good news. In fact, it's the greatest news you could ever get in your whole life. The fact that God would send his only son to die on the cross so that you could go to heaven and be with him forever that he loves you so much that he would do that. It's the greatest news. There's no better news than that. It's great news. It's the gospel. Now you'll notice this section features a human side description of salvation. There are things only God does 
in the salvation process, and there are things we are responsible for. This is a description of the human side, from the responsibility to preach it, to respond to it, and then to persevere in it. This is a description of the human side. So looking at what the Bible says, check it out in verse 1. Brothers, I'd remind you of the gospel. I preached to you. So here's the first thing. Jot this down. You heard it because I preached it. Write that down. You heard it because I preached it. And yes, we have to cover this because the gospel is not being preached in every church in our country or around the world. It's sad. Other things are being preached. Well, what other things? Well, here's a few. I would say these are the three biggies. The three big other gospels that are being preached would be this. First, the Jesus plus gospel. The Jesus plus gospel, meaning this. Okay, sure, Christianity is true, but it's only true for me. You've got your thing that's true for you, and both are true. I feel free to add extra truth on to what I believe is true. And that's the Jesus plus gospel, and that's a false belief. You can't believe that Jesus is true and the gospel is true, and all of these other truth claims are equally true. What you're really saying is you don't believe anything is true. You're refusing to actually pick one. You're, this is the lazy way out. Well, they're all right. Uh, no. And you can't believe in Jesus plus all of these other things because it takes away the exclusivity of Christ, that he actually did something that only he could do for all of humanity. Then there's the Jesus minus gospel. The Jesus minus gospel is you feel free to take away as much as you want from uh, orthodoxy and, uh, and still call it Christianity. Well, you know, I believe parts of it. I mean, we can't believe the whole thing, right? There's some funky things in this book, right? There's some things that I just don't believe could really happen. So I'm going to pick and choose which of it I'm going to believe. Parts of it are true, parts of it aren't. And I'm going to kind of be the uh, arbiter of how much of it is true. Uh, the Jesus minus gospel is not a true gospel. You see, you've got to take it all. Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. You don't get to pick and choose. You've got to take the whole thing. And then this is the one that's, I mean, this is catching fire all around the world. It's the Jesus jackpot gospel. The Jesus jackpot. If you believe in Jesus, all of your dreams will come true in this life. Uh, you can call it name it, claim it. You can call it prosperity gospel. You can call it word of faith, whatever you call it, but it's false. This is the teaching that your faith in Christ gives you the right in this world to health, wealth, everything you could possibly imagine, and somehow heaven is going to dawn on you in this world as long as you have enough faith as me, right? It's a false gospel. Uh, Jesus said, I remember, Jesus said that in this world you will have trouble. Jesus said, woe unto you when all men speak well of you, because this is how they treated the false prophets. Um, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, all right? And uh, crosses aren't cushy. Crosses don't take you to heaven, right? In this world, crosses take you to a place of suffering where you have to suffer for the gospel. Therefore, the Jesus jackpot gospel is false. Do we hit paradise? Or will all of our needs be met? Absolutely, but not in this life. It's not what Jesus died for. You heard it because I preached it. And by the way, you have to hear it to be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that a person has to hear the gospel to be saved. The Bible teaches that. Romans 10, 14 says an unsaved person has to hear the gospel to be saved. How can they believe? Unless they hear. Um, and if we, if we allow ourselves to believe that maybe there's these other ways that someone could possibly be saved, um, it will cut the nerve of urgency that is supposed to compel us to share the gospel. If you tell yourself, this person in my life 
has to hear the gospel or they cannot be saved. That's motivational. If our church believes this, that's motivation to get the gospel to the region. But if we believe, oh, well, there's a loving God and who knows how he's going to work it all out. He's got other sheep that he needs to bring into. I don't know how it's going to happen. You know what that does? That totally puts out the fire. That's not going to motivate you to get the gospel anywhere. The Bible teaches that you have to hear it to be saved. You heard it because I preached it. Next, you believed it. Jot that down. You believed it. This is huge. You heard it and you put your faith in what you heard. Uh, once you hear the gospel, you're responsible for your reaction. And Ephesians 2.8 says, It's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace through faith. And faith is your choice to receive the truth about Jesus Christ, to accept the gospel. Romans 5.2 says, through him, we also have obtained, get this, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You heard it because I preached it. You believed it. And then next, you've taken a stand on it. Jot that down. You've taken a stand on it. This is big. You're convinced. Yes, there could be a period of time when you had some questions and you were seeking some answers and you weren't quite convinced yet, but now you are convinced and you have you have a white knuckle grip on this truth you would suffer for it you would defend it and you would die for it if you had to and your grip is only getting tighter as the years roll on okay if you're holding to the christian faith with like tweezers like like so loosely gripped and anytime anything challenges you on it you're just so quick to let it go well yeah you know i believe my thing but maybe you have your i don't know if it's who am i to judge and so you're like little tweezers you're holding onto it with. It says here that you've taken a stand on it. You're convinced. You've got convictions. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You got your mind made up? And then next, you're being saved. Because of this, you're being saved. What does this mean, being saved? I thought I was saved. Right? I was saved at this. I got my story. What does it mean being saved? Well, this is, this is intended to capture all three tenses of salvation. Yes, in the past. In the past, you believed. And in the present, you are standing on the gospel. But guess what? There's a future tense to your salvation. Your salvation is taking you somewhere. Therefore, you're being saved. It's taking you to the place called glorification. When you will be made like Christ, then you will see him. Your faith will become sight. And that will be an amazing moment. You're being saved and therefore you can have confidence that when you leave this life, you will be in fact saved. And the Bible says man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And here it says that if in this life you believe the gospel, you are being saved and you will not come into judgment. Now this isn't what I was taught growing up. I don't know about you. But growing up, I wasn't taught that you could know you're saved in this life. Uh, in fact, I was taught you had to work your tail off in this life. I mean, and, and then even if you did pretty good in this life, there's this next life, there's this other thing called purgatory, and you had to put in some extra credit work there. If you, and then even then, who knows if you're going to actually end up in heaven. I was brought up not knowing if I was in fact going to heaven. Maybe some of you were brought up like that too, right? My daughter, Cassie, she's so cute, she's seven, and she's the kid who likes to tell all the other kids that she's a pastor's kid. <laughs> My daddy's a pastor. She, she tells the kids here and at school, she'll tell people that. You know, like, you don't know who you're dealing with here. I'm a pastor's kid, right? 
Well, recently she's been coming home and she's been saying, all my friends are Catholic. What does that mean? So we've been talking through that. You know, daddy was raised Catholic. Here's what that means. And so uh, heaven came up at the dinner table this week. We talked about how when, if you know Jesus is Savior, when you die, you get to go to paradise with him. Cassie said, well, one of my friends at school, she said that after she dies, she goes to some tree. We're like, some tree? What is she talking about? And then we were like, oh, purgatory. Purgatory. They don't, they don't know how to say it. It's so a little kid. They're like, we go to purgatory. And Cassie's like, what kind of tree is that? You like climb it like a beanstalk to get into heaven? Or... So I don't know about you, but that, I was kind of raised thinking that you can never really know in this life if you are, in fact, saved. And guess what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches right here, you received it, you stand on it, and by it, you are being saved. You can know that you are saved if your faith is in the gospel. But here's the thing. It says this. Here's the last point under this first point. If, if you hold fast. If you hold fast. It says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Believed for nothing. Um, we believe in eternal security here, which means once you're saved, you're always saved. But we believe there are some people who seem like they're saved, but they are in fact not. Now, maybe they're faking it. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they're giving half-hearted allegiance to Christ. Or maybe a trial has not yet come to test their faith and to show that it in fact is not genuine. But there are people who seem like they're saved for a time, maybe even for years. Then something comes along and off they go. They leave it behind. And the Bible teaches that their going showed that they did not belong. It's those who abandon the faith and who leave either because of persecution or because of harassment or disheartment or false teaching or whatever. If they leave, they were never truly saved. Hebrews 3.14 says this. It says, For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The call is to a lifetime of steady, persevering obedience in the gospel. And if you shipwreck your faith and tuck tail and run, it means that you never really had a firm grasp on it and Christ never really had a firm grasp on you. This is, this is the truth. The gospel is my only hope of being saved. You've got to hear it. You've got to believe it. You've got to take a stand on it and then you're being saved if you hold fast to the end. But what exactly is the gospel? Well, let's read on here. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at verse 3. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, jot this down. The gospel isn't just my only hope of being saved. The gospel is my only hope of being forgiven, of being forgiven. Um, Notice that Paul says here that he received this truth. You see, he didn't make it up. He got it. He got it directly from Christ who appeared to him, said, why are you persecuting me? And then the early church also gave him, this almost sounds like a creed of the early church, uh, something that they would all agree on. He got it. And it's binding on all because it's handed down from heaven to us. And we're just transmitting the good news to everybody who will listen. Okay, well, what exactly is the gospel? Here it is. Christ died for our sins. Now listen. Our sins. Sin stains. And like a towel soaked overnight in the most permanent ink ever invented, our soul is darkened by the shame and the guilt of our sin. 
And even long after our sins have passed and they're gone and we think that they're perhaps even faded away, the Lord says that they are as red as crimson in His sight. Our soul has been stained and Jesus died for our sins. But we don't like to admit that we have a sin problem. We're kind of like children in this. You know, what sin? Uh, check this out. My son got into something, and I've got it on video, and uh, he's having a little problem coughing up the explanation of how he got into this. Check out this video. Okay, I want you to give me a smile. Big smile. No, I mean bigger. What happened to your mouth? Oh, no. I don't know. I don't know. Say, well, ah. I don't know. Ah. Stick out your tongue. Show me your teeth. What happened to your mouth? Where did all that come from? I don't know. You have no idea? Show me your hands. The other side. Were you playing with markers? Yeah. He was playing with the markers. Sister ratted him out. Yeah, she was right there, looking over her shoulder. <laughs> you know what? I feel like that's the way we go with God. What? What? I don't, what? I wasn't doing anything. No, I don't know. Uh, but God looks through. He sees the inside. He looks on the heart. And you know what he says he sees? He sees the stain of sin, the guilt, the darkness, the shame. And guess what? He can't dwell with sin. And, and we can't get into heaven that way. We can't get into heaven all with, with our sin problem. And so Jesus died for our sins, to wash away our sins. Therefore, you don't need a philosopher to explain the world to you. You don't need a scientist to describe the world for you. You don't need a guru to transcend the world. You need a savior to take care of your sin problem. The Bible says the only thing strong enough to wash away your sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross so that every sin in your life, past, present, future, on the inside, on the outside, the words you said, the loveless things you did, all of your sin can be washed away. In an instant, Christ died for our sins. Then it says he was buried. This is mind-boggling. I don't know what I'm more amazed by. The fact that God the Son came into the world, conquered the grave and rose again, or the fact that he actually died. He really died. And they put him in a tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had to pry his body off of the cross and they carried a bloody corpse to a tomb and they went home covered in blood because he actually died. Listen to this. This is what happened. He died. And he was buried. And he died for your sins. But then on the third day, he rose again. The angel came down. The stone was rolled away. And Christ came out of the grave. And what hope do you have beyond this life after you die? What hope do you have of entering into paradise? Unless you come to the one person throughout all of history who not only rose from the dead, but he didn't go back into the grave. He ascended on high and witnesses saw him. And he is now at the right hand of the Father. And he alone, in the presence of God Almighty, can give you entrance into paradise. Who else are you trusting? And, and what else do you think happens after this life? You're going to die. 
What happens a moment after you die? Do you even know? You're going to figure it out when you get there? Christ alone died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. He alone can offer you now access into heaven. All right, I need proof. You can write that down. I need proof. Don't believe it. I need proof. Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul anticipated you would say this. And so, in verse 5, he goes on to give the Corinthians some proof. It says in verse 5 this. <clears throat> it says, And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All right, any proof uh, on what basis can I believe this truth of the resurrection? All right, here's the first one. Jot this down. The Old Testament said it would happen. The Old Testament said it would happen. Verse 3, Paul said, uh, in accordance with the scriptures, he died. Verse 4, he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's just citing the Old Testament in general and saying this was all spelled out in the Old Testament before it happened. Now, he doesn't give a list of verses, right? And we're not going to go into great, this could be a whole sermon. But I'll give you one. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. This is just one verse in the Old Testament that says there's going to be a person who dies. And what he does, the way he dies, is going to bring about forgiveness and healing of our sin. By his stripes, we will be healed. It's amazing. The Old Testament said it would happen. Here's the next one. Hundreds of eyewitnesses saw it happen. Not just a few, but hundreds. He lists Peter. Peter, after he failed his Lord, Jesus appeared to him. And the twelve. Oh boy, did they need proof. Have you read through the stories of when the, the twelve, the people who were most acquainted with Jesus throughout his ministry, when he appeared to them, what did they do? What did they do? Did they say, Verily I say unto thee, he hath risen. And then someone else said, he hath risen indeed. Is that what they did? What did they do? They screamed, ah! it's a ghost. They didn't believe it. They're like, they're like, Thomas, go touch him. Okay, go touch him. You touch him. We're not going to touch him. They wouldn't. They didn't believe it. Why? Because dead people don't come back from the grave. He had to prove it to them. Tony Evans is a pastor in Dallas. Maybe you've heard his ministry before, but he's, he's just a dynamic African-American preacher with like a really powerful uh, preaching voice. You can imagine him telling this story. But he says there was one time where he was at a funeral home before a funeral started, and he was kind of behind uh, backstage or whatever. And, and there, was a, there was a funeral director who was telling him about cadavers. And uh, he said to Tony Evans, you know, cadavers are pretty interesting. You know what they do. Tony Evans is like, what do you mean what they do? And he said, oh, yeah, they do all sorts of stuff. He said, I saw a cadaver blink. He said, I saw a cadaver start to tremble. There was one that started shaking so much it fell off the table. Tony Evans said, if one dead body falls off the table in this room, there's going to be two dead bodies in this room. <laughs> Apparently, there's spasms, muscle reflexes and stuff, and, and those blink or whatever, which would freak you out. Why? Because dead people don't move. And so for the 12 apostles, when Christ reappeared, even, even though he told them he was going to come back, they're just like, it's a ghost! And he had to prove it to them. 
hey, the fact that they were convinced gives you confidence. Then it says over 500 brothers at one time saw it. 500, and that's just the men. Paul said most of them are alive today. Go talk to them. You want to do an interview? Go get an interview. There's 500 of them. Most of them are still alive today. This wasn't done in a corner. What do you think of that? Would you want 600? Would 1,000 do it? How many had to see it for you to actually believe it? Okay, objection. These are his followers. Of course they believed it. They could be easily swayed. All right. Well, here's the next one. Not only did the Old Testament say it would happen, not only did hundreds of eyewitnesses see it happen, but jot this down, his enemies prove it happened. Enemies prove it happened. He says here, then he appeared to James. James was the brother of Jesus. Imagine growing up with big brother Jesus in the house. You think your sibling now is just so perfect, so smart and pretty, and you're the favorite. Imagine if Jesus was your big brother. Every parent-teacher conference was like, yep, he's still perfect. Never sins. Yep. He'd get all the awards. Book it awards, six flags. What? He'd get them all because he was perfect. He really was perfect. But James didn't believe he was the Messiah. No. His brothers and his sisters, they didn't believe it. He's out preaching and they're like, they want to stop him. They're like going to try and bring him home to shut him up. Stop saying these things. He didn't believe it. And then what happened? Up from the grave he arose and he appeared to James. And guess what? James became one of the greatest, most powerful leaders in Jerusalem in the early church. Why? Because even though he was the greatest skeptic, he believed. He was convinced. He knew Jesus better than anybody. And then Paul cites himself. Last of all, he appeared to me. Do you know how huge it is that Paul got saved? He thought, Paul thought, that in imprisoning Christians, he was serving God. He actually thought that he was doing God a favor by not only throwing them in jail, but he cast his vote against them that they might be killed. He was responsible for the death of early Christians. What does it feel like when you welcome that guy into fellowship after he gets saved? Could you look him in the eye if you lost a loved one because of his aggression? And then he shows up and he wants to preach. He wants to be the pastor. He starts writing books of the Bible. He was the greatest skeptic. that He, he was willing to murder Christians. And he was convinced. He believed it. That's pretty astonishing. He goes on to say in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Jot this down. Not only is the gospel my only hope of being saved, not only is it my only hope of being forgiven, but jot this down. The gospel will change my life. It changed Paul's life changed Peter's life, James, the 500 who saw it, and it will change your life. The pastor of Harvest Naperville says this, if your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. And that's true. For Paul, he had a lightning strike experience. Maybe for you it wasn't that. Maybe you were younger. But at some point in your life, the gospel, you hear it, you believe it, it changes you and it affects your life from that day forward. Paul says he was, he was a Pharisee. He was 
He was trying to enforce the law. He calls himself one who was untimely born. You know what that means? That's just a general term used to capture an unexpected, shocking, or abnormal birth because of its timing. A baby that comes too soon or too early or something goes wrong. It's, I'm just one who's untimely born. I'm a, I'm a freak birth as an apostle. Christ had been in heaven for years and all of a sudden he appears to me. He says he's unworthy. The other apostles weren't hunting down believers and dragging them off in chains. It's a wonder God pursued this guy because he certainly wasn't pursuing Christ. He says he worked the hardest, yet even when he says this, he says that his work is only the aftermath of God's initial grace and his enduring grace on Paul's behalf. You see, he realized that he doesn't work to earn God's favor. He's not earning it. It was grace. What does grace mean? Grace means you're given something you don't deserve. That's a hard truth to swallow. But the Bible says what we deserve, what our life, what our works have purchased for us is our place in eternal damnation. That's what we've earned. We can't work our way to heaven. Paul says God's grace, his grace toward me was not in vain. Grace means God gives you a gift you didn't earn, you could never earn. You're simply a happy recipient of it. God extended grace to Paul, and God extends grace to us. This is one of the most profound truths of the Christian faith. It sets us apart from every other world religion. It's the concept of grace. It's the concept that you don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. That a holy God would send his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for every sin. He purchased the forgiveness. Then when he rose again, he now extends it to you as a free gift. It's called grace. You see, you don't have to turn over a new leaf or, or pick yourself up and fix some things in your life before God will take you in. You don't have to make a list of 20 things that you did wrong and start going through it and, and making it right. And then when you get halfway through, God shows up. Oh, you must be serious about this. Let me help you the rest of the way. It's not like Christ set the whole thing right and now it's all up to us. That's not the way grace works. Grace means I am a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. I've received something and I just want you to receive it as well. It's called grace. And maybe you've, maybe you've never heard this. Maybe you've never heard that it's a free gift God offers you. But you have to repent of your sins. You've got to understand what drove Christ to the cross in the first place. And then you have to believe the truth of Christ. Then you are saved. And it's in an instant that it happens. There are things that happen to you the moment you're saved that can't be undone. I've told people before, it's like your soul goes through a car wash without a car and it comes out clean the other side. It's called conversion. It's called being born again. It's called being saved. And it happens to you at some point in your life. It can happen when you're five. It can happen when you're 95. But it has to happen. And if you don't have a story of when it happened, no salvation story, no salvation. There has to be. If you could tell me over coffee, tell me your story. You got to have a story. Even if you could tell it in one sentence or in a whole hour, there has to be a time that you went head on with the gospel. There was a collision and it changed you forever. You don't come out of the encounter alive. A brand new you is brought to life. And get this, if Peter can be saved, a guy who shouted at the top of his lungs, I never knew Christ. He can be saved. 
If Thomas can be saved, I'm not going to believe it until I touch him. I refuse to believe it. He can be saved. If Paul can be saved, and he sent men and women to their death, and God accepted him, guess what? God will accept you. But he'll only do it by grace, and he'll only do it if you receive the gospel and put your faith in Christ. And the good news is that that can happen today. And I want to give you a chance to put your faith in Christ today by believing the gospel. Right now, we're going to close our eyes, we're going to bow our heads, and we're just going to take a moment and talk to the God who made us. We're just going to direct our hearts up toward heaven. We're removing all distractions right now. Every eye closed, every head bowed. And ask yourself where you stand with a holy God. Ask yourself if you truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself if you agree with God that you have a sin problem that only He can solve. Ask yourself if you know that you are going to heaven. Lord, we pray to you right now. There are many in this room who just needed to be reminded that they are saved, that your grace to them was not in vain. Lord, that your love for them will never be taken away. That you proved once and forever how much they mean to you by sending Jesus to die on the cross. What an amazing, astonishing truth it is, the gospel for Christians. But Lord, there are some here this morning and they've never responded or received the gospel. Or they don't know if they're going to heaven. They don't know if they're being saved. But something brought them here today. And they know that you're speaking to them. Father, I just want to give them a chance to talk to you. Lord, in their own heart, they may want to pray this. Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm sinful. I'm broken and beyond repair. I cannot save myself. I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. I believe he was buried. I believe he rose again. And here and now, I come to Christ to receive forgiveness, to receive eternal life as a free gift. Come into my life. Wash me completely. Help me to know that I'm going to heaven. Father, for those who received the gospel for the first time this morning, my prayer is that a rush of joy and peace would fill their heart, that your spirit would affirm for them that you have forgiven them. You have put their sins as far away from the east as is the west, and though they were as red as crimson, they are now white as snow because of Christ. Lord, help them to understand that you've promised them eternal life. Never will you leave them. Never will you forsake them. Give them hope and security based on the gospel. And Lord, we just thank you for your grace to us was not deserved. We do not deserve to be with you forever in heaven, not after what we've done. But we look forward to it. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the cross. Pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.